Listener Production. You will recognise Alex Dyson's voice almost immediately. Perhaps you once woke up bright and early with him when he was a presenter for Triple J. Or perhaps you're a big fan, or about to be a big fan, of the Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast podcast right here on Listener. Well, what you might not know is that Alex is also the author of books for kids and young adults, that he once wrote a column for Girlfriend magazine, that he has joint custody of a real-life ARIA award, owns and operates a comedy club, oh, and he ran for parliament in the 2019 Australian election. My name is Jamila Rizvi and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where Bron and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to this weekend. But first, here is my chat with the complex, eclectic and very, very funny Alex Dyson. Alex Dyson, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Thanks so much for having me. It's a, what a pleasure to be here on the on a sunny Saturday. <laughs> My memory of first hearing your name and your lovely voice was waking me up in the morning listening to Triple J when I had a newborn baby, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. That's probably about right. You you do trump me on the lack of sleep there even though I was getting up at about 4:30 AM to get into the Triple J studios to host the breakfast show. Um, I'm sure that you were up even prior to that, uh, ready for the very first break of the show. Now, some people would argue that you were a baby yourself when you first took on that role. And that's no, like, that's a serious gig. Um, Triple J is something that, like, holds, like, that special place in the in the national zeitgeist or cultural heart even. And so there's a lot of eyes and ears on you when you take on a gig like that. You were 21. Did you feel the pressure? Yeah, absolutely. I remember the first one I did, I was my first year of university and I was would have been 18 and that was an overnight. And even there I felt the pressure. I think I was t- writing out exactly what I would say, like just not wanting to say anything wrong to start with. And then uh, sort of realising that's not a really feasible way to do five hours of graveyard radio. <laughs> it's just to do that. It's more, you know, learning the ropes, making a few mistakes, trying to do a little bit better next time. But yeah, it was. I was 21, I guess, when I started The Breakfast Show. And because it was so fast, but also so gradual starting overnights and then sort of doing weekend breakfast and then doing the the primetime breakfast shift. It felt relatively natural, but yeah, at at times I certainly pinched myself. I remember myself and my uh, co-host Tom Ballard walking out of the ABC offices one time after a meeting where they said, yeah, we want you to do some shows on Triple J. And we walked out the front of the building after playing it all cool. And then I just put my hands on my knees and like went into a position as if I'd run a marathon and just (laughs) breathed out like, did that just happen? And so, yeah, I guess us? being quite, I, I would not be the person who'd argue that I was a baby when I, when I started for sure. Yeah. Were you nervous or how did you cope with the feedback that you get? Because no matter how popular you are on the Australian media landscape, it doesn't matter if you are, you know, uh, Beyonce fan page for cats, right? Like yep. everyone will hate on you, even if it's something delightful. Uh, and Wait, so is that a real thing or do you just pluck that from the air? I want to follow that. Is that, is that exist? I'm, I'm, there, I'm there all the time. <laughs> oh, look, I'm sure it does. I, I want to know how you deal with that when you're in your early 20s and you're making good stuff and you're getting some great feedback, but you inevitably are also going to get, you know, the Twitter trolls and the, the ugly stuff as well. Yeah, I think it's about, it's not about ignoring it. I don't, I don't think you can ignore it. At least I can't 
totally ignore the the comments that you you do get in sort of public facing roles. But I, I think you've got to contextualize it a little bit. That, that's how I dealt with it to start with. I think I was young, inexperienced. We did the first shift on radio. This is the first shift shift I was talking about where the show started 1 a.m. Okay, it's like a Monday night, 1 a.m. Me and Tom introduce ourselves wow. to a whole brand new audience. And then we get into it. And the first text we receive that refers to us as radio hosts was, less talk, more music, you're boring, worst on radio. And <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> and, well, the good thing is we were there together. If I was there by myself, yeah. I think you just you would think about it a little bit more. But when you're with someone else, you can laugh about it. And the thing I thought was in the entire medium of radio, I'd hope we're not the absolute worst. So I thought was I looked for the logical fallacies of their argument. But what <laughs> I did do was I wrote down that text and through my whole Triple J career from that night until I retired on my 30th birthday, um, I had it stuck next to my desk as a little bit of a, you know, started from the bottom. Uh, <laughs> but I always remember there's, there, there are going to be people who don't like you. There are going to be people who really like you. I try not to listen to either uh, because then they have a little bit of power over you. You've really got to sort of look internally. Were you happy with today's show? You know, could it, could it have been a little bit better? And listen to the, the people who you respect, a lot of whom um, have made the same mistakes getting to where they are. <laughs> and so it's about, yeah, being trusting where you are at the moment and just always trying to improve where you can for sure. I remember I got an email after the first time I did the project on Channel 10 and it said, uh, too many opinions, talks too much, shouldn't wear pink with brown skin. <laughs> what? It's like someone throwing out a, a lot of opinions for someone who doesn't like opinions there. <laughs> See, there's the logical fallacy. Um, Contextualise. You don't have to listen to what they say. <laughs> but I think I, I genuinely think I sobbed at the time. I can look at it now oh, and I giggle. Familiar. But I genuinely, I think I was really upset when that happened. And as you say, I think you kind of harden up to it and you learn not to pay attention to the really lovely stuff or the really horrible stuff because it's probably the ordinary people who didn't say anything and just listened and went about their day that are the ones yeah. that you want to impress. That's what I thought about as well. Like the people who text in hate or email hate and that kind of thing, if they were out at a, a barbecue or a dinner with their friends and they were going, geez, I tell you what, who's got too many opinions? Or I tell you what, who plays, talks too much and doesn't play enough music? Alex and Jamila, that kind of thing. And if I was there and someone was saying that to me, I'm like, why are you doing this? And they're not the kind of people I would want liking what I do. It must take a, a certain level of confidence or sense of self from a very young age to have the kind of ambition that puts you on national radio at 21. Tell me about you as like a primary school student. Were you the kind of kid that, you know, at lunchtime was sitting there making up radio shows with your friend or who were you? I did make a radio show with my friend and her and his older sister and her friend one time. We like, yeah, we'd tape songs off the radio and then put our own voices on next to it and stuff. But I think, I think I was the person that said yes to stuff. And at a young age in primary school, it was my friends were doing a, a school musical, you know, like a, the primary school age amateur musical theatre. I said, oh, that could Amazing. be fun. I got the role of Bert, the Royal Guard. And I, okay. <laughs> you know, performed very, very, very is well. Is that a famous musical about Bert, the Royal Guard, or is he more of a sort of a side character situation? He was, he had the first lines of the musical, was not seen after the a first scene, <laughs> okay, ironically. Just checking. I know my musicals, but I might have missed one. 
Yeah, well, I, I did have to go leave a performance halfway through because I got my fingers jammed in a stage door, unfortunately, and so I Bert was <laughs> not to be seen for the rest of the show other than at the emergency department of the Waterville Hospital. But <laughs> I think that once you do that, you get up on stage, like you're nervous, my hands are shaking, you're knocking. Mm. I very fortunately, like as you're young, they, they try to teach you to be an actor, is like write the backstory of your character. And <laughs> I... I think I, I wrote that my character, Bert, was Irish. And so I tried to do an Irish accent as a 12-year-old. But very fortunately, probably about three days before the actual show, I bailed out of that. My, my media career could have been over before I started as it, doing a terrible Irish accent for Bert the Royal Guard. But I think the confidence you get from doing that, making it through, stuffing up, going to hospital, learning not to put your finger in stage doors and learning not to do Irish accents gave me just enough confidence to then in year seven do another musical and maybe do some debating, which gave me just enough confidence to, um, you know, sign up for footy and do that or I did tap dancing and that and that gives you, you know, enough confidence and, yeah, to then when Tom asked, do you want to do a community radio show? My brother do, does one. I'm like, yeah, that could be fun, you know, talking on radio. And so it's, it is, yeah, a gradual thing that, I don't think I was born with. Like, I think I'm quite a traditionally shy person, but yeah, taking it one step at a time, it does, yeah, build it like many layers of paint. Eventually it becomes pretty thick, I think. So tell me about working with Tom Ballard, who's a lifetime friend, and then later going on to work with Matt O'Kine, because I've got to say, you know, I work in a completely different field when I'm not doing this kind of work. And if I ever let my brain go to the place that says, I'm going to suggest one of my mates to come and work here with me, my brain then very quickly goes, that is a stupid idea, don't do that. And you seem to have a bit of a habit of working with mates. Well, yeah, I like working with mates. It was pretty interesting because, yeah, when Tom and I got the job, we both had to move from Victoria to Sydney to do the breakfast show and I didn't yeah, know anyone right. in Sydney and so I said to Tom, So he was like, your only mate. So he was my only mate who'd be in Sydney. So oh. I said to him, like, oh, would you want to get a share house or something? He goes, absolutely not. <laughs> smart from him. <laughs> Which was a good call. I'll give him that. He's a, he's a smart man, Mr Ballard. Um, but, yeah, so I did do that. But I think, yeah, being around the people you, you get along with is, is also good. But it's interesting because Matt, I met on the day we did our first demo for Triple J. I, so he wasn't my mate until... Yeah, we are in the same room oh, doing a right. practice radio show. You two have the vibe of two friends who've known each other so, so, so long that you're almost like brothers. Oh, that's really cool. That's really nice of you to say. You yeah, it's um, it, it clicked really quickly. Like we were in the studio doing a um, to do the demo, but we were just talking. I said, like, what have you been up to today before coming in here? Because I think I'd done the you know, the show in the morning, he came in like about midday and he was telling this story, this funny story, I think got a speeding ticket. It was some, it was some story. I don't want to defame Matt by saying he, he speeds. So maybe it was Definitely wasn't that, didn't get a speeding ticket. He got like an award for driving very safely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But then I think I made a joke about it, that he made a joke. And then the boss of um, the content director, Triple J at the time, Ollie Wards goes, hang on, are you guys recording this? And we're like, no, we're just, we're, we're chatting. That's what... <laughs> We're being polite, you know, and he goes, always record, like, because we were just chatting and laughing. And so, yeah, I think it was remarkably natural because, yeah, often, you know, any um, person who's listened to radio could say sometimes, sometimes it gels and sometimes it doesn't, you know, even if people are brilliant individually, um, it doesn't always work. But I think, 
yeah, not only is Matt just a, a really funny dude and a really open dude, and that works so well um, on such a personal reading medium like radio. I think my experience, like when I was working with Tom, often he'd be the one behind the desk pressing the buttons and I sat on the other side. And when Matt came in, he was not qualified to press the buttons. And so I went to the button to pressing back to buttons. the old days. But I also knew what it was like to sit on the other side of the desk and have that sort of reactionary um, role when it came to, uh, yeah, me driving which direction the show's going and then uh, Matt coming back. So I sort of, I think I knew a little bit more of how to set him up to say some funny things or like make him shine a little bit more. And so maybe that's a little bit why it, um, it does work as, as well as it does. Now, I want to turn from you and Matt building that new rapport with this new show on Triple J to the decision to leave because I can imagine if you found that kind of success and notoriety so young, it would be really hard to pull the pin. Um, yeah, it's hard to pull the pin because it's like such a cool job, like getting to talk to really cool people, yeah. go to cool concerts. I re- like one of the best bit is meeting listeners. Like it honestly feels like they are your friends. You know, they like a like a version. They ask, "What's your favorite like a version?" Yeah. You know, did you see this live gig? You know, that how about that funny story when that person came up? Because you all experienced it together. It is a tough thing to leave, but um, coming into the third year of myself and Matt's show, it was um, yeah, it was a, as fun as ever. But I think Matt's you know someone I think like myself, but who wants to try and do as many things as he possibly can. And I think radio, it wasn't like his first, like getting into comedy and then acting as well was what he went to university for. And so, and I just, I still to this day don't know what I want to do when I grow up, but I I could see myself, you know, doing it again, but I didn't also want to do again for the sake of it. You know, having a third host come on with Alex Dyson and I end up a, you know, a stage three clinger. If I or we did another year, it would be good, but it would also be the same. And so I think the time came where I thought, you know, it could be time to experience new things, try something different and also let someone else have a go, you know. So, yeah, making space for, for young people coming through is, was something that, you know, also played into the decision when it came to um, hanging up the, uh, the glow sticks and, uh, <laughs> and heading uh, into, the, uh, into the unknown. Take me outside of the radio and podcasting space for a moment because you are someone who has a whole lot of things going on. And when you said you don't know what you want to be when you grow up, that to me kind of seems to fit with your incredibly eclectic resume because you're doing all sorts of stuff. Tell me about writing for kids and also for young adults. Are you someone who's always liked writing and and how do you think about, I suppose, voice and audience when you're writing for a demographic who is no longer yourself when you're writing for little kids especially? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's true. Like, I guess someone who doesn't have kids myself as well, it's like, you've really got to just, um, it's a it's a lesson in empathy. But I guess leaving Triple J is when I started writing the, the novel, just for the sake of like, it's almost writing to your younger self. And it's like, here are a few things I wish I had known kind of things by way of a fictional character. Okay, you've got a job on the radio now, you're out here dealing with that sort of 
attention and the way pe- your friends would get in touch and like some people would get in touch because um, they want to see how you're going. Some people would get in touch because like, do you have tickets to Groove in the Moo sort of, you know, situations and like negotiating those kind of things alongside um, what I think came at the heart of the first book, which despite being about a um, young kid who has a song go viral and then has to deal with, you know, record labels and radio stations and, and that sort of thing. It is also about a young kid figure out, figuring out themselves uh, and their crush, which is, I don't know about you, Jamila, but that's a big part of being in high school, I found, is Yeah, the, I would argue the biggest part. Yeah, it's like everything is so important. Every gesture is picked up on. Did they say hello to you? How did they say hello to you? Did they linger in the classroom? Did they walk straight out? It's like everything is the most important thing. So I just remember that distinctly when writing for this sort of young adult market. But also a character who had lost a parent, which was quite important to me as well and something that I'd experienced, not the same age that this character had, but the way those sort of things can define you and the father being who passed away in the novel being defined by his illness and the, the kid who in his own way had been defined himself through the bullying experiences that he'd felt or like um, various things. And so, yeah, you try to get across a couple of themes in there and... You just want to. I want to help young people like myself realize it's it's rough, but it it's temporary, and other people have gone through it before, and you will you will learn and thrive as the, these somewhat awkward and embarrassing and uncomfortable experiences become the bedrock onto which you could build a uh, a really great life city. <laughs> you mentioned wanting to include a character who had lost a parent young. Your, your mum, Helen, died when you were just a little kid. How do you think that shaped the person you ended up becoming, the absence of someone for most of your childhood? I'll tell you what, Jamila, it would have been three weeks ago, like, what am I, 34 now? About three weeks ago, I sort of had a bit of an epiphany, like reading some books and that kind of thing about how that might affect you. Because you're right, it wasn't like the the acute pain of losing someone who whose personality you know, who you have memories of, you know, it was more of that sort of void. And I was kind of realising it's, it's somewhat of a... Um, like a black hole in which it's something you can't take a photograph of. You know it's affecting you because of the there's debris and planets and asteroids going around something and it's affected by the gravity of this hole, but it's very difficult to actually um, define how it affects you. And so I think it, I think it is something that is extremely important in people's lives and our upbringing, no matter if it's the trauma of losing someone or um, any number of experiences that can, can happen to you that can have an effect later in life. It's, yeah, it's been interesting, like going through those sort of thoughts recently and coming to terms with them, sorting through it, like sorting it out, putting into boxes, why these sort of things, because yeah, there's, it's a lot of it's, there's so many things that aren't your fault going through there, but um, it's really great to seize the responsibility of recognise it and then showing you how these unconscious reactions can can infiltrate your life I guess and I'm very I'm a big novice at you know working this sort of stuff out but I also find it really interesting to um to think about like I I thought of a podcast idea like why are you why you are I thought it'd be a funny name for a podcast I love that I will listen (laughs) straight away which would be yeah interesting I think everyone goes through their own journey of of figuring that out and you know some things are obvious as to what happens and some things are a little bit more hidden but it is um man it's a it's really cathartic when you are able to identify a few of the things that you're um you're unsure about thank you for sharing that because I 
I do think it's something we don't talk about enough. We often assume at any age or stage when we lose someone that we kind of deal with it quickly and we all move on, um, which mm-hmm. is almost never the case. And, you know, when my little when my little boy was about age two, three, I was really acutely ill and, you know, I don't want to get too morbid, but, you know, acutely ill to the point that we were very much preparing for um, what happens if I'm not around for the rest of his life. And I remember the, the most urgent thing for me was he's not going to know who I was, so you all have to tell him and you can't pretend I was better than I am because I was so nervous mm. I'd sort of be... Um, I suppose the word is beatified. I didn't want to be this like, oh, your mother, she was so kind and angelic and wonderful. And, you know, I am clearly all of those things. But yeah. like I was like, you've <laughs> got to tell him the things that made me grumpy and the things where I would mm. have a short fuse and, you know, that I liked bitching with my best friend Pip about people we knew in high school. And I want I want all of me communicated mm. to this kid, not just the angelic bits. I remember that being like a, just a really strong fear. Yeah, I, I think that's really strong. It, it, yeah, rings true. Like, as I was saying the last couple of weeks, you know, in conversation with my psychologist saying, oh, it could be good to go and talk to your mum's friends or relatives and, like, flesh her out as more of a person rather than, um, yeah, a, a big, I guess a bit of an outline for a lot of my life she's been and you see photos and stuff but you don't get to know them. And so it's been interesting having those stories, which some of which have been great, some of which have been sad because so far it has been centered about that traumatic time of um, of the diagnosis and what, is um, turned out to be a relatively, you know, unfortunately rapid deterioration. But yeah, one of the things I, I talked about in, in uh, to yeah a close a close relative was the um, that thing as a, as a human being, <laughs> like I, I think it was um, they're not going to remember me kind of things. And yeah, it is really strong, strongly um, would be such a strong feeling because we, we all have an impact. And the great thing is, is that she has, we're talking about Helen, my mum now, she's amazing. And that's why I was um, almost my favourite part of, of the, um, of the first book I wrote was the yeah. dedication to her. Cause I, yeah, dedicated to, to my mum, Helen. And I said, whose sound still echoes through the universe. And it's often in very understated ways. I'm sure, but yeah, the impacts you have on people can echo for a very, very long time. And so, yeah, I think it's, it's great to, to recognise that and, and then to adjust the way you, you behave and treat people as, as positivity and then the more reverberations of, of those, I think, is the, the better direction we'll all go in. If that was Ruffy saying that in 30 years' time, I would be very proud of him. I want to turn from a very difficult poignant conversation to Australian politics, Alex, because that's <laughs> the best segue I've ever done. Yes, true. Uh, that, is, um, that is a tough one, isn't it? Aussie politics. Yeah, you ran for parliament. I did. I've done it twice now. That's, this is my question. Tell me about that. I'm zero that. from two. I'm zero from two in my, uh, <laughs> my political runs. Tell me about that choice in the first place because there aren't many people for whom if you put politics on the table as a job would go, oh, yeah, I'd love to have a go at that. I think that's the problem as well, Jamila. You've identified it. And I, I accidentally said this during the campaign at one point. But it's, it's interesting because what I was talking around, like 
Do I think I would be the greatest politician of all time? Absolutely not. I've got some really great strengths. I think I'd be, I'm really empathetic. I can listen really well. I'm a go-getter. Um, I really like helping people. Am I, do I have the best attention to detail? You know, can I sit through Senate estimates without sort of like my mind wandering? Maybe I'd have to work on those kind of things. But um, when I was out of the campaign, I'd often ask people, like, I'm doing it this time. Would you give it a go next time? And they would say, oh, God, no. <laughs> you know, absolutely not. Because, yeah, honestly... Why would you? Who in their right mind would run for parliament? Which, if you follow that extension, yeah, that's potentially why we get quite a few people in their wrong mind running for parliament and doing it for reasons of power or status or, you know, these kind of things which unfortunately don't put the country on the right path and instead you're squabbling the negativity, the trying to win, rather than trying to help the people who who elect you to, to be there. And so, yeah... It was one of those looking at it and getting frustrated enough that I'm like, someone should do something. (laughs) And um, I've embarrassed myself enough over the years that I thought, well, at least I'm a little bit more well-placed to get out there, think on my feet, talk a little bit and advocate for why and how things should be done better. Part of that is a bit more positivity. Um, Yeah, when it comes to making decisions because I've met it's amazing standing at the how to vote so you've got a piece of paper with your face on it and you're handing it out and next to you are all of your political opponents yeah yeah (laughs) you know either themselves or their representatives for people volunteering for them and the collegiality oh yeah you always see everyone chatting at the polling booths right having a good time yellow Clive Palmer t-shirt next to the person in the green you know, Adam Bant T-shirt versus the, the blue Liberal T-shirt versus the Labor, the, the teal independence one. It's like everyone's like, oh, do you want me to grab that for you if they're dropping stuff? I'll give that back. You know, it's it does show that we can get there. But, yeah, the um, the competition of ideas has really melded melded away to be the, the, just a competition <laughs> rather than, um, yeah, trying to, trying to do the best. And so, yeah, I did give it a, a little bit of a, a red-hot crack to – not only potentially give my home electorate of Wadden its, you know, first non-Liberal member for 70 years, which I think would be bad if it was anyone for 70 years, can I just say? It's not the getting rid of the Liberal Party. If it was Labor for 70 years, we would be just as non-pork-barrelled as if it was the other way around. Uh, But uh, it was also to, to really counteract what I did see at Triple J, you know, talking to young people every day, was the understandable glazing of the eyes, the throwing of the hands in exasperation when when I ran the first time when I was 30, I hadn't voted in an election where the Prime Minister lasted the full term. So for those 12 <laughs> years, everyone my age and younger would understandably go, well, what's the point of voting? Yeah. What What is the point of paying attention? I will, I'll vote, things will change, it'll be out of my hands later on and... I think that's a really dangerous thing, particularly for young people. If that's the case, it should only reinvigorate your energy to try and get involved and to and make a bigger difference and make the people who have not been doing a good enough job know that. And the, you could get on as many talkback things as possible. You could write as many letters to the editor. But the thing they do listen to is if they are voted out of office. <laughs> and so I think, yeah, try to show that we can instead of taking the apathetic route, take the really engaged route and try and, um, yeah, speak to people that way. It was the, was the thinking behind uh, a few of my runs. 
um, even if the the method was a little bit unorthodox as well. <laughs> oh yeah, everyone, you should Google the interpretive dance policy statement <laughs> because that that has been the peak of my week. I can tell you that, <laughs> Alex. I want to ask about what you were trying to do by running for parliament both times and how we can achieve it, your victory aside. And I should say, folks, this wasn't some joking around thing from Alex. He did pretty well. Uh, I've got like a record here of almost 20% of the vote. That is no mean feat. That is hard to get. That is a serious number of people uh, wanting to put you in the in the little greenhouse. Yeah, well, we got it to, the, um, to about 3.8% margin, which was... Um really incredible and a, a testament to uh, the people of Wannon really for yeah. taking a punt, you know, and do, doing something differently, getting behind me, putting, you know, doing something a little bit differently to, to try and make it a little bit better. And um, yeah, I really don't mind who does the job as long as they're doing a good job. And so, yeah. And the best way for them to do that is to know that people are watching and uh, are not going to take it for granted, their vote for granted. And so therefore, hopefully the politician doesn't take them and their area for granted either. Other than electing you in a potential third run for parliament, we've got a whole lot of younger people who listen to this podcast who are engaged in the news, but not necessarily going to be super engaged around politics and care that Mm -hmm. much. What would you say to people who want to not necessarily be involved themselves, but want to be more engaged, want to pay attention, but kind of don't know where to start? Start with uh, what you're good at, and you, yeah, and f- and offer that to people. You know, sometimes you could be good behind the scenes, just organising a spreadsheet, and um, you could be really good in front of people. So you could be out door knocking for politics and meeting people, which is really daunting at first. But if you if they realise you're there to listen to them rather than come in and tell you tell them what to do, that's that's really great. You could be good at art. You could make some t-shirts or like as one lady did crochet a Dyson for one and beanie oh, <laughs> which, how did you not which win? works really well if you if work in what's um your your strengths are not only will you find it more enjoyable but you'll be a, you'll be an incredible asset to any sort of political campaign and even if even if all you could do is to vote and to get one other person to tell them passionately why you feel that this is a great use of their vote or just do it yourself. There's so many little things. I wanted to be able to say to my hypothetical grandchildren that when that climate crisis was happening and I'm like, yeah, we all knew it was, it was not looking good and then they said, well, what did you do? I wanted to be able to stand behind it and I didn't want to be a you know, radio host just preaching from Instagram as, you know, fix climate change, guys. I'm like, okay, no, let's, let's actually get involved and I can stand a little bit behind my words with some action, hopefully. Well, I reckon those future grandchildren are also going to be super impressed. Um, Alex, thank you so much <laughs> for being... They're going to have being... weird names in the future, aren't they? <laughs> oh, my gosh, like... they are. They're going to be called ridiculous things, uh, like Kylie Jenner-type equivalent new names. Well, yeah, there'll be some um, Zeeks and... We'll, probably, we'll have a, probably have a new letter to the alphabet. You know, the way inflation's going at the moment, it's only a matter of time until it hits the alphabet and we'll get another letter. <laughs> it's only a matter of time, Jamila. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for being my guest on The Weekend Briefing. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. That's it for my conversation with Alex Dyson. You can check out the Matt and Alex All Day Breakfast podcast online using the Listener app or wherever you are getting your podcasts. Don't go away. The Weekend List is coming up next. 
It is weekend list time. Bron is here. We are properly back in the new working year. We are past the holiday bit, that part of January where people are kind of coming in and out and you're not sure who's going to show up at work every day, Bron. We are here. We are doing it properly. What should people get up to this weekend? People should get up to watching you people on Netflix. Um, <laughs> it is Make the most of your weekend, folks. Exactly. Um, it's about this white Jewish man played by Jonah Hill falling in love with a black woman played by Lauren London and the culture clash of their two families as they get together and get engaged and plan to be married. It had some really funny laugh out loud moments. It was fast paced. Um, There was a podcast storyline to it. So maybe I'm biased because I like anything with podcasts in it at the moment. Um, But the cast was unreal. Jonah Hill was the lead. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Eddie Murphy played the like meddling parents there was a bit of what it's a big names big hitters there was like cringe humor in it it was yeah really funny very easy to watch and yeah i really enjoyed it so you want to marry my daughter yes yes i do well ezra you could try but they hate me can you honestly say that your family's excited to have my black ass in the picture Oh my gosh, you are so beautiful. I think the police okay. are f- up towards black people. I like your braids. Thank you. Exhibit had braids. I love that so much. I am ready. Like I'm, I'm, I'm ready to put down this podcast. You put it down when we're recording. I'm ready to walk away from this situation, Bron, and go and watch immediately. Thank you for that recommendation. I am going to recommend a podcast. It's a new one that is called Nature or Nurture. It's hosted by Sam Peterson, and I was completely surprised by just how captivating these interviews were. And I had high expectations. I thought it was going to be good because I've um, followed Sam's work before, but I didn't ever think of him as an interviewer. He's a, he's a comedian by trade. Uh, but his conversations with famous Australians, Australians of note, including a lot of people who've been on this podcast on The Weekend Briefing before, are completely captivating. And I think the reason is that he discusses something that is relatable to literally everyone. He starts with the idea of, do you think based on your own life experiences, you are a product of nature or a product of the nurture of the people who raised you? And then he asks that same question again at the end of the interview, after exploring what that person's childhood was like, how they grew up, what their parents were like, perhaps. Um, He explores joys, conflicts, sibling relationships, It's just fascinating. And there's all these people that I thought I knew quite a bit about because they're interesting comedians slash celebrities. And I just got to discover a whole new side of them. That's so fascinating. My next one is Babylon, the film. It's available in cinemas at the moment. It's about a period, uh, it's a comedy slash drama film, I would say. The cast is also some pretty heavy hitters as well with Brad Pitt, Margot Robbie. It's about the rise and fall of like multiple people during Hollywood's transition from silent films to the talkies in like the 1920s, 1930s. It's a long film. It goes for three hours 
and like maybe a bit more of that. So be prepared for that. Disclosure, guys, it's long. It's long, but I did enjoy it. I feel like it's a movie that people are either going to love or hate. There are some people that are saying that it's, you know, overrated and whatever, but I feel like it was so exciting, kept me entertained the whole time, even the whole three hours. Definitely one to watch in the movies to get the full experience rather than, you know, I'm sure it's going to be on a streaming service in a couple months. So get out into the movies while it's on now. I always want to be part of something bigger. Yes. Let's go! Something that lasts, that means something. You know, when I first moved to LA, you know what signs on all the doors read? No actors or dogs allowed. I changed that. That sounds super fun. And I feel like I've had a kind of a return to the movies in the last few months. It's like I've rediscovered them. Mm. Uh, amazing guys. Uh, headline, uh, go to the movies. <laughs> uh, but honestly, I'm, I'm ready to like get out and about and watch stuff. I feel like I'm, I'm almost outstreamed in some ways. Uh, I will come back next week with a streaming recommendation. So don't be too alarmed, everyone. My final recommendation It's one I'm really worried I'm pronouncing wrong, guys, but I think I've got it. And it's actually a clothing brand. It's an Australian-owned clothing brand. It's called Eufem, spelled E-U-P-H-E-M-E. Don't come at me if I'm saying it wrong, folks. And I have come back to the working year a little bit in a slump. (laughs) I really enjoyed my time at the beach and I really enjoyed some time with my family and just being away from everything and hanging out with mates and not having that pressure of work. And the idea of coming back... I think I needed a bit of a boost. And for me, that meant buying a beautiful new suit and getting excited about some work things that are coming up. Their stuff isn't cheap, but there's a reason for that. Firstly, it's beautiful quality. But second, and I bet a whole lot of women in particular listening to this will get this, women's suits tend to be really structured and made of fabric that just tears easily. And these are not, they're super stretchy. They don't look like stretch fabric, but they are, which is the best. Um, Their silk stuff can be washed in your washing machine rather than you paying a huge amount for dry cleaning. And it's just beautiful tailoring. And I was so impressed. And I don't think I'm ever buying like a proper fancy grown-up suit where you can't sit down without taking a deep breath first ever again, because I will buy this because it looks like that, but it isn't. That's it for today's weekend briefing. Thank you so much for lending us your ears and keeping us company through this morning. If you really enjoyed today, then I recommend downloading the listener app and you can follow us there and make sure that you never miss an episode or you can subscribe, follow wherever you get your podcasts. If you've got a moment to leave us a lovely little rating or a review, that would put a pep in Bron and my step as we We have a joint step, folks, as we waltz on into 2023. The briefing will be back bright and early on Monday morning where Tom Tilly and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.